This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on this episode, it is the return of drummer Mickey Curry. We talk about Live Aid and all kinds of other stuff. But before that, on the phone from the Beat 92.5 in Montreal, it is our number one on hair, on air, or or hair. I mean, I don't have any. <laughs> or hair. Host, Both of them apply. Both of them apply. It is the mighty Jeremy White. Good day, Sir White. How are you? Good day, sir. I'm sure my employer is going to love the fact that you gave out the shout out. So that that's great. Yeah, and listen, uh, folks have uh, maybe been following me or you on on Twitter and Instagram. Have been seeing us together at all kinds of events. From they've seen us at like everything. Yeah, I mean Sammy Hagar. Uh, you know Alice Cooper's coming up. We've done a uh, Billy Idol and Brian Adams. Oshiega, Heavy Montreal, just all, everywhere. So you, you have become the uh, de facto uh, touring partner. But before we get over to uh, Mickey Curry today, what did you think of that Billy Idol and Brian Adams show that we saw together recently? I mean, what, was it not just epic, for the lack of a better word? Well, the only reason I make an appearance on this show is because you called me out on your last interview at the beginning of it. So that's the only reason I'm here. Also, I'm sure all of your fans that follow you on social see pictures of you and I together. They're like, oh, who's this ugly fat chick that Mitch is hanging out with? So that's also the other reason I'm here. I'm not I'm not the ugly fat chick. I'm the, the ugly fat uh, radio guy. The radio guy. That that's right. <laughs> you could be, you could be yeah, a good... No, so I, I, I got to tell you, man, you know, that concert, Billy Idol and Brian Adams was, I think, you actually summed it up really nicely. You called it the best package tour of summer 2019. And after what we saw in Syracuse, I got to tell you, man, like that is a great way to sum it up. It was just hit after hit after hit. Um, sound was fantastic. They just looked like they were having a blast. It, you couldn't beat it. You couldn't beat it. You and I had a blast. I know that. I know. And, and you and I got to deliver, along with a buddy of mine named Joe, some yes. cheesecake to Billy oh, Idol's band, and then some cheesecake over to Brian Adams' band. Wasn't that kind of cool? Yeah, Steve Stevens was looking at that cheesecake and was like, oh, I shouldn't eat this, but I am. And he, he ate like four or five pieces of it. It was, it was so good. So shout out to Joe. And what is it, Big Mama's Cheesecake? Big Mama's Cheesecake in Syracuse, yeah. And and by the way, while we were doing the interview with uh, Mickey Curry, the room next door, now this is the one where I had a kick. Brian Adams was recording some songs. <laughs> And he was doing Sweet Dreams. I mean, I, we, I, I don't know if you can pick it up on the interview. I'll, I'll check that as the tape rolls. But it was like, oh, Brian Adams is swing, singing Sweet Dreams. I mean, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know? when you went outside to go pick up the cheesecake, um, I was standing in the band's dining room, which is where you recorded the interview. So when I was in there, Brian had his little guitar rack set up. And I just have an idea of what the dressing room looked like. It wasn't even the dressing room. It was called the band's dining room. So they had like the little fridge with the Gatorade and the Red Bulls and they had like the espresso machine. But then in the corner, you had Brian's basically guitar rack, like a big acoustic guitar, it looked like a Gibson, and he had like a, a Fender Precision bass. So they were both standing in there. And then when you and I went upstairs to bring the cheesecake, when we came back, the acoustic was gone. So we totally missed Brian in that 10-minute span of us leaving that little room. We would have like had totally had a little run-in with him. I know, but well, hey, listen, you got to interview him in, uh, I guess, January uh, earlier this year, but... Uh, yeah. But what, 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 cool. 
What what a what a checklist you and I have have checked off this year. I mean, we we Brian Adams, Sammy Hagar, Gary Sharon. You know, at, at that M three festival where we got to meet Gary Sharon, there was an other very famous guy there that we hoped to meet, but unfortunately they clear <laughs> they cleared out the back uh, area and wouldn't let anyone anyone within you know eighty feet of the of the of the, of the individual. Um, yes. A certain somebody. I don't think we're allowed to say his name, but no, he's the, but, of the headliner on one of the nights, and he has a very you know fancy sounding accent. Yes, but, but yeah. But can, can we maybe talk to his uncle, uh, Jeremy Coverdale? Is that possible? Oh, let me, let me see. Hello, Mitch. How are you? Oh, uh, quite well, young chap. You know, you should feel very privileged, and I've taken some time out of my busy, busy schedule of tweeting and drinking very fancy red wine to make an appearance on your on your peasants only listening podcast. You know, it, it is a fabulous podcast. But by the way, is that is that Jeremy Stanley standing behind you? Uh, hold on one second. I don't believe it. Hello, Mitch. How are you? Good. 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 Are you, are you ready for the Montreal show coming up this month? You know, Mitch, I'm so excited for Montreal. It's one of my favorite places ever, especially because you guys have opened your hearts and opened your legs to us so many times over the years. Merci beaucoup. Oh, there we go. Should, should we, uh, Scooty, it was mosey on over to Mickey Curry? I mean, by the way, isn't he just a fabulous oh, drummer? Mitch, I just oh. got to tell you before we go, everything that you want, kiss you goodbye. Just give me all your money. We'll take all your money. Team G is the one telling you, but... I want all your money too. Okay. Yeah. Well. Hey. Yeah. Why not? Why not? There's plenty of it to go around. Um. But um, Mickey Curry. After the interview, you had a nice chat with him, Mister Jeremy White. You had a nice chat with him about uh, gear. Do you want to relate a little bit of the gear chat you had? <laughs> Hold on. I'm trying to knock off my really posh British accent. <laughs> well, yeah, we can. So- Jeremy Coverdale <laughs> could certainly uh, tell us about it. <laughs> It'd probably be. A- <laughs> It'd be a lot funnier if I did it in the British accent. Yes. But, you know, we, were just, we were just talking about, because I'm a really big Mutt Lang fan. Like, I have a PhD in the guy, and that's what kind of, that was the majority of my interview with Brian. Like, that's what it kind of was about. Like, talking about the recording process, writing songs. And I remember in your last interview with Mickey, he told you a story about how he was just, like, sweating buckets before he went into a session with Mutt. Like, this is in, like, the mid-90s when they did um, uh, Really Love a Woman. Right. And he went in, and he was like, all right, I guess we'll just do it. And then he did one take, and then Mutt came back at the talk back and was like, okay, yeah, I uh, I think we got it. And Mickey was like, uh, what? <laughs> so we, we were talking about that story, but we were, we were talking more like uh, technical stuff about like, uh, you know, what it was like recording Reckless. Like, obviously, he split duties with Pat on that record and what it was like kind of putting together that drum sound. Because they recorded at two different studios, right? They recorded that little mountain, and I think it was Power Station in New York. Yeah, I believe the Power Station. Uh, I believe so, or maybe it was all Little Mountain. But um, yeah, well, no, because he was saying that they would they went back and forth, and um, I, I was I made a comment on how it all sounds like one studio, like the consistency of the drum sound between studio to studio was fantastic. And he was like, "Yeah, that was all you know, Clear Mountain. He that, he really put that all together." And he was giving me like the. Uh, kind of like the visual of how they recorded those drums in Little Mountain. Like, they would basically create an alleyway or, like, a hallway from the drum kit into the loading bay using these baffles. It almost looked like an L-shape, he said. And they would direct the sound of the drums into 
the loading band, then they would set up microphones in there. But he was also saying that Clear Mountain would do some little tricks of like basically putting a speaker or a PA system and send the sound into there or into like a really, really ambient stairwell, almost like a fire evacuation stairwell. And they would mic it up in there to get even more reverb and like live ambience to like a really dead sounding drum kit. So apparently a lot of the drum tone from that record came from obviously the loading bay, but also that stairwell power station, which I thought was super interesting. I'm like, I, and as a recording guy, I was like, I would have never thought to go and throw a speaker into a stairwell and re-mic it and then use that as the reverb. Yeah. Yeah. Or an alleyway, you know? You know, I think we've lost a little bit of that because now with all the Pro Tools and all the, the presets and all that, you just click a button and you can get those kind of effects. But that yeah. sort of creativity that goes behind it and thinking about these things, I think that's what added charm to those records because it was it was, it was was a labor of love more than just like, oh, I'm just going to click this button here. There yeah, we go. but you also got to remember at the time there wasn't technology. Now, you know, kids are going to recording school or so-called, you know, I'm doing like air quotes recording school you know they're like oh you want to you want to that brian adams uh, you, you want that mutt lang uh adrenaline snare all right uh let's just load up the mike shipley preset and that waves our verb and we'll we'll have the cannonball snare whereas back in the day they didn't have the technology so the fact that they were creative enough to go and throw a speaker into you know a stairwell and then put a microphone in there to create ambience for a drum kit i mean they, they, at the time i mean you could kind of call it yeah. revolutionary well it was and, and and that's what that that's sort of my point that we've i think we've become lazy in our record making oh, because it's just i'm going to push a button rather than well i need this sound yeah. it's in my head how do i get it out of my head and onto this vinyl and we don't do yeah, that anymore 1000%. anyway shall... yeah, nobody's doing anything like that anymore so yeah shout out to the original engineers if if mont lang happens to hear this calling me let's go for lunch seriously we won't see photos either i promise well <laughs> Jim Valens perhaps might hear this because I, I have a tendency to send the uh, Mickey Curry or any Brian Adams related stuff to Jim for him to check out as well. And would oh, that'd uh, be awesome. Yeah, so hopefully I, I would love it. He's he's one of the greatest. Um, would uh, would Jeremy Stanley like to introduce Mickey Curry today? Pivot! This guy right here, he knows how to hit. And when I want to hit, I, you know what? Forget it. Just go to the go to the interview i don't even know what i want to say oh well let, let's do <laughs> it my you know paul stanley's probably going to charge us for even saying his name so maybe we should just go to the interview it was jeremy stanley but let's go all right let's do it my way then oh, yeah. right right let's do it the, the <laughs> let's do it the mitch lafon trademark way here is the one the only and yes for you steve brown the mighty Mickey Curry. We are here in uh, Syracuse, New York, uh, backstage with uh, Mickey Curry, drummer for Brian Adams. Also spent some time with, well, everybody, including Hollow Notes. Uh, you've done some work with Helix, right? Uh, um, and uh, Scratch Band. And, uh, well, you know what? Let, let's start off with, with the Scratch Band. That was your original band. Yeah. With G.E. Smith, I G. believe. G.E. was in the band, yeah, initially. Uh that would have been 75. Yeah. I started working with Scratch Band right out of high school. And uh, GE was the guitar player. Paula Sola played bass, Bob Orsi, guitar, piano, vocals, and Christy Norman, who's a great singer, uh, was lead singer. And I was in the band till uh, uh, summer of 1980. GE had left a year or two earlier than that. He was doing lots of work in New York. And uh, I sort of hooked up with him again later, a couple of years later with Hall & Oates. Right. So. so 
So talk to me just real quick because we, we know the success you've had with all these bands, Hall and Ozum. What was it like trying to set up an original band? How, what were some of the challenges you faced where you said, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll just go play for Brian. Maybe I'll just go play for Hall and Oates and not try to do my own band. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. The Scratch Band was. We were great. At, at, uh, it was a really. We did a lot of sort of stuff at the at the time. Everybody was playing disco songs, and you know, if you wanted to work, you had to play top forty. And mm-hmm. uh, we did a lot of. You know, we were playing a lot of reggae stuff. A lot of uh, kind of off the wall. Lots of old R and B and. Um, I don't know why it wasn't sort of going. We had a, a bunch of original songs. We had a couple of records we did our, ourselves. And um, it just felt like it wasn't really going anywhere for me. So I thought uh, if I can just get some session work going elsewhere and, you know, maybe something, one thing will lead to another. But I really wanted to just do session work, you know. I wanted to do recording. So uh, I started going into New York I was getting a couple of calls for showcases and uh, a guy, Peter Lubin, who worked for Mercury Records at the time, was uh, a fan of the Scratch Band. And he called and said he had a band in New York um, called Tom Dickey and the Desires. Uh-huh. And uh, By, uh, Tommy Matola. Tommy Matola managed them. That's mm-hmm. right. And uh, I had just done GE's record, uh, his solo record, um, at the Power Station. I think it was late that 1980 or something. And uh, I went into New York and worked with um, Tom Dickey at Electric Lady. Tommy Mottola was managing them. And he came down to a session and asked if I'd be interested in staying, uh, you know, coming back uh, the following week or whatever to work with Hall & Oates. They were doing a record, which ended up being the Private Eyes record. And then while I was doing the Private Eyes record, Bob Clearmountain, who had done GE's record called and said he had this guy from Canada would be, uh, you know, he wanted me to play drums. So that's what was Brian. So within, you know, a month, I had both of those gigs going on at the same time. And I thought, this is great. It's session work. You know, it's recording. I wasn't committing to to play live with anybody. But while uh, the private eyes sessions were going on, Daryl Hall asked me if I'd be interested in touring. And I said, sure, you know, um, that summer... Uh, I went out with GE to promote his record. We did a month and a half across America opening for Squeeze, which was uh, me too. I'm such a fan. Yeah, Gilson Lavis is a great drummer. Uh, That was really fun. I met Paul Carrick on that tour. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I love him, and uh, he's great. And then in the fall, I was out with Daryl and John, and that, you know, ran for the next six or seven years or something. I was with them. and I want to ask you also about their, their producer. But before yeah. that, and yeah. I forget his name, Neil Kerman. Kernan. 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 Neil was fantastic engineer. Yeah, Neil got great drum sounds. And, uh, you know, if you listen to those records, at least the, the Private Eyes record has such a great, big, flat, fat drum sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love that. You know, um, he made really good use of that room at Electric Lady. We, we got, uh, I was thrilled to death with the sounds he got. But Neil's a real uh, a great set of ears, a real rock guy, you know, and um, he was great to work with. So I enjoyed that. And, you know, at the same time I was working with Clear Mountain, either up at the power station or down there at Electric Lady as well. And he's amazing, you know, for drum sounds, you know. Well, 
I actually want to take you up on Neil because when you think of great yeah. producers, we think Mutt Lang, yeah. we think Bob Rock, we think Bob Ezrin, yeah. uh, Rick Rubin, and that Neil name doesn't come up a lot mm. in those conversations. Then you look at the fact that he's got a hundred gold and platinum records. He's got everybody from jazz to metal yeah. to death metal to. Yeah. He's one of those guys. He. Uh he he's 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 in the room, mm-hmm. but he's not a big giant presence in the room. Right. He just he was he was at the mixer board. He would put up those sounds. You'd go do a track, you know. You'd get a smile or yeah, that sounds great. Or let me fix that snare drum for you. Or you know, he was just he was just amazing to work with. It was there was no pressure or no sort of. Uh, uh, you know, quirkiness or weirdness or anything. He he just got great drum sounds. Um, those tracks, I mean, those basic tracks on those Hall and Oates records uh, were what the records ended up sounding like. They didn't do a lot of, you know, Overdubbing. not a lot of stuff. You know, the stuff was right off the floor, and Neil was the guy doing it. Best. Yeah, and you know, you had a great. Uh, you got guys like T Bone Walk, and um, uh, the Private Eyes record was John. Um, I knew I was going to do this. Uh, play bass. It, it was the John. Don't you know who yeah, John yeah, is, the John. right? <laughs> anyway, uh, and GE, of course, and Daryl playing piano and John Oates playing guitar. And uh, those tracks just sort of sounded like that when we recorded them, you know? It was a big thrill. But Neil was absolutely fantastic to work with. Uh, I really loved those sessions, you know? Yeah, I'm just amazed that we don't consider him in yeah. the same pantheon. Because yeah. you look at the success, yeah. you go, well, why are we saying Bob Ezrin is great? I mean, he is, yeah. but why aren't we saying Neil's great yeah. at the same time? Oh, since you mentioned happens. drum sound a couple of times, what do you think is a key to getting a good drum sound? Uh, is it just miking? Is it, I think is the it? miking has a lot to do with it. But I think and, uh, the guy who's recording you has to sort of... Uh, does he have to be a drummer? Not necessarily. Although um, most of the drummer sort of engineer guys I've worked with, they get it pretty quick. Uh, you know, our guys live, uh, Rob uh, Nevelinen is our monitor mixer, and he's a drummer. Mm-hmm. And he gives me this mix every night. I mean, you know it's a drummer, mm-hmm. you know, throwing the sounds into your uh, cans. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, miking is important and uh, just sort of getting, uh, if the drum sounds good in the room, it should sound good on tape. Right. It should sound good coming through the speakers. It, it should sound like it sounds. And Bob was always, Clear Mountain was always really good at that. Uh, Bob Rock is really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Filippetti is really good at that. Uh some classic names. They've a lot of great albums. Yeah, those, yeah, those guys. Uh, T-Bone Burnett's really good at that, getting that. Mitchell Froome is really good at that. Just getting that live sound, you know, and uh, just sort of controlling it enough, right, in the mix. So, yeah. Well, let, me, let me get over to Live Aid. It is one of the most culturally significant things. Of course, Brian Adams was there, but you weren't with Brian. Yeah, I saw him. We saw him in catering. <laughs> we were we were throwing stuff at each other, screaming and yelling. We were all so excited to be part of this thing, you know. Everybody's hugging and jumping on the tables and screaming. We we're like monkeys in the. It was really really fun. Live Aid was so much fun, right? So and exciting, you know. So so let, let's explore that because how did how did you get into it just with a band? I mean, I know. I mean, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. 
But for, for, for most people, a gig is a gig. And then this thing became larger than life. So when did you get a sense that we're not just playing a show in Philadelphia? This is going to have a cultural significance for years to go. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we you do a lot of sort of festival shows. You do a lot of, um, especially in the summertime, there's always a, you're doing shows where there are 30 other bands on the same weekend you're on or, you know, you, so you can sort of get used to that, but this was different. We knew, we knew that, you know, this was going out to a huge TV audience. Mm -hmm. It was a big cause. It meant a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest names ever were going to be part of this thing. And we knew, uh, and I'm just, I'm referring to me and T-Bone and GE, the Hall and Oats guys. guys. We knew that we were going to be on stage for an hour. So you did an hour set? Almost. We were on with uh, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, came okay. on from the Temptations. First, we started with Hall and & Oates, then Eddie and David came on. We did a set of oh. Temptations. Okay. And then Jagger, Mick Jagger came on. With Tina. Well, he came on alone first, and we did a song with him, and then Tina came out. So we felt like we were like the house band, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we had to learn all these arrangements and funny things. But we did have a rehearsal uh, the night before at um, SIR in New York. And Mick was amazing, you know, he made sure we all, everybody was cool and we all knew what we were doing and, and Tina, you know, was great. And, uh, they sort of worked out all their moves and steps and between Eddie and David and, uh, uh Daryl and John, it was, it was, it was really cool. But yeah, we were on stage for a while and, um, we knew it was going to be a big deal. Just, you know. You get in a stadium anywhere like that. It's really exciting. You know, you got 80,000 people in front of you and another, you know. A billion. A billion people watching from somewhere. I, I was watching. Yeah. I, born. Yeah. <laughs> the most exciting thing for me, though, was when Phil Collins came. Right. And played. You know, he had played in London and then he flew and mm -hmm. played. In, and I got to sit. I was sitting right sort of behind him off the side of the stage watching him play. We, he played with Tony Thompson, who's was one of my all-time favorite guys, and I loved him. Uh, but to watch those two guys work together, Phil Collins is, you know, beyond words. He was such a great... He's The, the, the drumming on everything he did is frighteningly good. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to watch that, that was the big highlight of my, um, my uh, Live Aid thing. I mean, being on stage was great, playing, you know, working with Jagger and Tina is... It was fun, but watching Phil Collins. Play, and you say that so casually, working with Mick Jagger. Well, you know, the thing, I had uh, I had done a couple of songs with Mick um, on his first. He did a solo record, mm -hmm. and uh, we did a couple of songs. And I had worked with Tina with Brian, mm -hmm. and um, right, so you know, we I mean, we knew each other other enough to look at each other and say hello. I you know, Mick would kind of. I think I know who you are. Yeah, hi. I'll say hi to you, but. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, Live Aid was something else, man. It was really, it was really something. Do you think in this day and age, 2019, going on to 2020, that artists have lost that kind of social consciousness? Do, do we do we need to be doing more of that? Because we haven't really had a Live Aid since then. No, but I mean, look at Woodstock. Fifty fell apart. Like, how did that fall apart? Well, honestly, I would say maybe because a lot of the artists were a little selfish. It was all about money, 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 yeah. and but prestige. I mean, you know, and Woodstock I is the one that changed the world, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes, Live Aid was important, but Woodstock was 
sort of the the first thing, you know, massive musical thing. You know, you get half a million people in a field somewhere for for three days. It, it's amazing. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think people are still socially conscious. But you're probably right. It's probably it always comes down to money and logistics and uh, you know trying to put things together for a cause I don't know I don't know why um, there aren't more things like that now I wish there were it be, should be there should be there really should be yeah uh, and remind me because I'm actually blanking did you play on Northern Lights or Band-Aid no neither one no okay so then let me start talking about some of the Canadian bands because you are an American drummer yeah and your discography includes work with Celine Dion, mm-hmm. um, Helix, mm-hmm. obviously Brian, yeah. and one that I'm not too clear on, but it says you've done additional percussion on Honeymoon Suites, The Big Prize, yeah. which is my favorite Canadian. Well, no, Reckless is my and favorite Tom Canadian. Cochran. And Tom Cochran. So h- how did this sort of American drummer get to be the Canadian go-to guy, if I can, if I can sort of contextualize it that way? Well, that's flattering, but I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, oh, hey, Celine Dion, Tom yeah. Cochran. Hey, 50 bucks is 50 bucks. Right. We uh, saw a shirt like that. <laughs> All right. And 50 bucks Canadian is $30 American. So, <laughs> no, um, I think what happened was uh, when I first came up to Vancouver mm-hmm. to Little Mountain with Brian, mm-hmm. um, Bob Rock was there. He was the guy there. He was always at Little Mountain. Uh, working on everything and um, we just got to know each other and become we sort of became friends and he started calling and you know Bruce Allen uh, managed a lot of local what was going on in Vancouver he had his you know uh, everything everything like Chilliwack Loverboy everything so um, I think between that connection you know the the phone would ring and hey you know can you come up to Vancouver for a few days the Honeymoon Suite thing uh, that record they had recorded everything, but they wanted to replace the drums on a, a few of the songs. They weren't happy with the drums. Which ones? Um, Which ones? Because they do one song with um, Ian Anderson, yeah. All Along You Knew on the album. Yeah. So, well, I, I don't remember the specific songs. All I remember is coming up there, we had the drum set up, and Bob asked me, it was Bruce Fairburn and, and Bob, I think. I, I, Bob was the one I talked to, though. Uh, he said... Some of these tracks are all over the place, and what I what I'm hoping is that you can sort of smooth out the transitions between, you know. So I thought, okay. So I would play along to these pre-recorded tracks, and I think I did. I probably did eight or ten songs, so it was probably most of the record. It's a great. It's it's their greatest sounding record. Well, sonically, yeah, and they're they are the nicest guy. I love Derry. Derry is one of my. All-time favorite guys. Yes. Yeah, I just I love him to death. As a matter of fact, they he called or emailed or something a, a few years ago and said we're in we're, we're going to do another record. It'd be great if we could get. And of course, I was out here on the road with Brian and I couldn't do it as much as I would love to. But I love that honeymoon suite stuff and I loved those guys. They were just the they were great. So that was that. And then you know Bob uh, the Rock and Hide thing. I worked mm-hmm. I worked on that record. Dirty Water. With Paul, yeah, fantastic. Paul's Paul's incredibly gifted, and uh, you know, Bob's a joy to work with. Um, so that was fun. Uh, what else did I do out of there? A Helix. Um, I don't know how Walking that. Walking the razor's edge, I believe it was. 
Uh, the name of the album? Yeah. Which, the Helix record? Yeah. It was Rock on the Razor's Edge, wasn't it? I think it was... Um, it's the red one. Heavy Metal Love? Or maybe that was a song. I don't know. I only did two songs. I, got, I went up to Toronto and worked with you. I worked with Luba as well. Yes, I know that. <laughs> that was fun. She actually lived in the city next to us, and every time we'd go to the pharmacy, or every time. <laughs> yeah. Often. You'd would, see her. I'd, I'd oh, her. nice. She and was her, very her, sweet. Her guitarist, Jeff Smallwood. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Jimmy Vivino, mm-hmm. uh, we were on the same flight up there and we were sitting next to each other and we didn't realize we were both going to the same session. So after about a half, so 20 minutes on the plane, we started talking and uh, I realized, oh my God, this is Jimmy Vivino. And uh, we were going to the same studio to work together, which was pretty... In Montreal? Yeah. Yeah. But um, I'm trying to think of the other Canadian records you referred to. Tom Cochran we did in Memphis. Very uh, At Ardent. Yeah. With Joe Hardy. Right. Sadly missed. Um Terrible, but uh, that was fun. Spider, Sineve played bass on that. Another. Spider, the, the one with uh, Holly Knight? He's with uh, Loverboy now, but he, he worked with Tom for years, and uh, Spider's a great bass player. Oh, can, the, the bass can, player, not yeah. the band. No, no, Spider, uh, he's he's uh, Canadian. Okay. Proud proud Canadian. But, <laughs> but ultimately what, I'm, what I want to get to is talking about how it, going into a, a session – Doing these different styles, how do you sort of prepare as a drum, or or is, or is Mickey just Mickey? I just I think that it's more of that. You know, I go in a nervous wreck, right? And I go in thinking, this is the session where these people are going to know that I don't have any idea what I'm doing. <laughs> these are the one. These are the guys that are going to know I'm faking all of this. Right. I'm just trying to channel, you know, Jim Keltner or Jeff Procaro or John Bonham or Ginger Baker. Or Keith Moon, you know, you're trying to channel whoever you need to be for that particular track, that right. song, the vibe of the thing, or, you know. Uh, and I, to this day, that's me. As soon as I sit down at the drum kit, I, I think this is the next three minutes are going to prove to everyone that I have no idea what I'm doing. This is where they all figure it out, that I'm just a hack and... I'm working really hard to get through this without anybody knowing that I don't know what I'm doing. Well, since you That's started in 75, it's like 45 years of, or yeah, yeah 45 yeah. years yeah. of being a, a hack, a, a very well-paid hack. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know about the well-paid part. Like I said, 50 bucks Canadian doesn't go very far anymore. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always been that guy. You know, you walk into the room and you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. Right. You don't want to be the one that, you know doesn't know what he's doing or so it i don't know if uh, i prepare all that much you know you listen to demos i write myself a little, couple of little cheat sheets and a couple you know a note here and there um just for arrangements and but but do you spend time listening to honeymoon suites previous album or yeah, celine's I've previous always, album yeah like the when i when i went in to do the cult record um right which we want to talk about too. yeah sonic temple I, I was a big fan of theirs, first of all. So, uh, yeah, I did, I did that a lot. I would make sure I had a, an idea of sort of... But, you know, how can you not know right. Celine Dion before you go into a session? Right. Uh, how can you not... But Honeymoon Sweet Helix, you, you may not. Yeah, Helix I was not all that familiar with. I knew they were, they were a big sort of, you know, metal... Hard rock Canadian Hard rock band. Canadian band. And um, they were... Those guys were so much fun. Brian's great. Yeah, Walmart? yeah. They, they were so much fun. And, you know... I, I was in the studio for a couple hours with them. 
but it was so much fun to work on a project like that, you know. That was a bit out of my wheelhouse at the time, you know, that big metal thing. Well, that, so do you have you ever had a session where you just go this is not me. I, well, I, I had a, I, I worked with David Sanborn once and I couldn't do it. I completely failed. Yeah, there was a the song was it was in a funny time. It was either in 5 or 7 or something and I went completely blank. Really? I couldn't move my hands. I froze. You know, I had such a block. I was sweating and I was scared and it was that session. It was the one everyone dreads. Well, you walk how, into the room, you sit down at the kit, and you cannot play this piece of music. I didn't have the technique or facility to do it. Does it still bother you to this day? It bothers me, but I hear the song now, and I can do it with one hand. Now, I, I mean, it, it's... I just drew this... I had this block. I was so... It was really intimidating. You know, I love David Sanborn. But Anthony Jackson came in and blew through this bass part like, you know, he did it. He so did it like, once. Like yeah, nice just the unbelievable how great he was. He blew through the chart. And uh, Philippe Says produced the session, and he was... They were so kind and nice to me. So it ended up... You know, we tried for a little while. I, I, I wasn't getting anywhere. So they went, that's okay. They sampled the drum sounds... And they programmed a part with my sounds, and they just made the record with that. And uh, what makes that amazing to me is uh, eight months later, David Sanborn sent me a gold record. The album went gold, and they sent me one. And I literally had... Did he charge you? Yeah. (laughs) I literally had nothing to do with the record, but he was so nice to do that. Yeah, did he charge me? <laughs> well, because yeah. people, people don't know that for gold records, you yeah. got to pay like 700 bucks or something. <laughs> I, I can't believe he did that. You right. know, I mean, I was part of that project, uh, and it was so kind and nice. I'll never forget that. But I, that was sort of a, a you know, it was, yeah, it was a really cold, hard slap in the face. <laughs> you know. You've got to know what you're doing before you walk in the room. If it's beyond, if you think it's going to be be beyond sort of your capability, let somebody else do it. You know. Okay, so what is beyond your ability? Like, what kind of style of drumming could you not handle? Because we talked about Neil doing death yeah. metal and stuff yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You're not a blast beat kind of guy, no, I guess. But I could probably fake something depending on the song and the right. the tempo and sort of what they were going. Uh, I'm not really good with sort of up-tempo swing as much as I love it or like a big band thing. Right. I would love to be able to do it, but I'm, it's just not my thing, you know? Uh, I'm way more comfortable with that sort of simple four on the floor, uh, just set a groove, and it's all about groove for me. But uh, some of this stuff is technically, you know, a lot of things I hear now, you know, you just go, I don't know how got to be really good to do that and it's beyond my you know we all have i think we're all limited in a, sort of our technical yeah. so uh yeah but i i always wished i could do that sort of really up-tempo swing stuff you know uh and it's just i can't i sit down and work on it and it just doesn't come so uh you know i'm at a point now where it's just play where i'm comfortable you know right Stay with Brian. So let's before we wrap up. I want to do Brian and and, and the call. Well, I don't want to do Brian. That's wrong. <laughs> but 
Um, no, that's the wrong word right there. No, but uh, Brian, Brian has has, and maybe this is wrong, but I feel he's sort of changed his sound over the years. He's 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 gotten away from Kids Wanna Rock and sort of gotten to more like Cloud Number Nine and more. I don't want to say it's softer, but it, it's not. How much input do you have in any of that sound and creating any of the songs, or is it just hey? You're the drummer, play these parts. I'm imagining that you're not just the hired gun at this yeah. point. Uh, Brian, you know, he always comes in. He's usually got a demo of the mm-hmm. song. And we kind of try to stick to the, you know, the vibe of the demo. So, yeah, a lot of times it's just play. Whatever you do, it'll be great. Or it's, look, I'm, I really love this pattern or I really love this fill or I really love this pie bit or so let's, you know, let's keep that and just do that. Uh, Jim Valance, who's an amazing drummer, yep. uh, plays on a lot of the uh, demo stuff. Originally with Prism. Yes. And, uh, you know, he also worked on the Tom Jones show when he was in Canada and Jim, he was the house guy on that. And mm-hmm. it's phenomenal. Oh my God. What a great drummer. And the sweetest guy, he's great. But he plays on a lot of the stuff, so I love the way he plays. So I just, I love copying his, <laughs> his demos. So a lot of times that's what I'll do. I'll just sort of take the, ba- the, 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 the vibe, the gist of what he's got right. going and, you know, do it how I sort of do it where it's comfortable for me. And most of the time that works for Brian. But, um, yeah, as far as the um, getting out of the sort of harder rock thing and maybe a little more uh, pop, pop, or whatever, whatever. I don't know. Uh, he he's he's done so many different sort of styles of things. You know, he's really good at the R and B thing. His covers record is so good. We were listening the other day to uh, "Kiss and Say Goodbye," mm-hmm. um, and the the version was so his his vocal is scary good, mm-hmm. and everybody plays it so beautifully. You know, uh, Bob Rock engineered that, and um, David Foster produced that record. So, there's another. You had some, yeah. There's David Foster. There's a guy, huh? Yep. Come on, come on. What a. Do you wish that he, before it's all over, that we do sort of a reckless part two, not to call it that, but, you know, a hard rock and yeah, just say... I don't know. I don't know. You know are we all past that? No, I think we, we could all do it if the songs were there right. and, the you know, um, you get everybody in the room and yeah. uh, no, no one's opposed to doing that. I just don't know, you know, how... Uh, we're recording all the time. Brian's always doing something. You know, he's always got something going on, so... Uh, you never know. Some of these things might come up again, you know, that that kind of vibe, you know. I'll ask you sort of the unfair question, but is it sort of where the inspiration takes it or is it sort of a marketplace concern? I think it's – sorry, Gare. It's kind of um, – And I know it's an unfair question. No, I think for Brian it's, it's all about inspirational, Good. you know. I don't think it's got to do with uh, trying to sell records for Brian right. anymore. It's really about just making what really, really good music, you yeah. know. What what he enjoys writing and singing. Well, well Shine a Light's a great album. Shine a Light's a great record. It yeah, really is. That was that track was so much fun to do. We we just flew into we did it. It was just the two of us on the track, and um, you know we did it at Power Station. We hadn't been there in years, mm-hmm. so we, I walk in and the drums are there, and the room is the same, and the control room's the same, and we just had so much fun that afternoon putting drums on that track. It was really fun. I mean, it's a very simple, basic drum part, but it was so much fun doing it. You know. But it, trans- it translates to the live stage. I've seen three shows now yeah. since you've right. put it out. 
and it fits right in yeah. between somebody and run to, and you I don't. Think so yeah, it's you, you don't go. Oh, it's the new song. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Yeah, you, you know, we 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 were talking. Somebody uh, I was talking to Bruce Allen the other day about that, um, and how bands go out and you know, uh, all they want to do is their new songs. Right. You know, people come to hear your hits. That's what they're coming to see you for. That's what I think. And no, Brian, no, you're right. He's really aware of that, you know. So we do the big ones, and then you know he's got some great new songs. So if they fit the show, they're in. It does, you know. And we put them in, and we love playing them. You know, Shine a Light's a blast to play. It's really simple, but it's really, it's really fun. And the other one was uh, Ultimate Love, I think. Is yep. that one yeah, fits that, too? Unfortunately, the greatest hits. Yeah, we don't have time. Now with with Billy, uh, you know we're, we're limited for time, so that one kind of um, got canned. Okay. Yeah, It'll but we'll back. but we'll be doing it again. Yeah, that's yeah. a great. That's really fun to play too. That's kind of my. I'm channeling Ringo, I think, on that one. Just open those hats and <laughs> and go. So anyway. Oh, actually, you know that brings a uh, talking to Ringo, and we spoke about Mick Jagger, and of course Charlie Watts. Yeah. Ooh, what's your sort of take or philosophy on on the kit because there is the very sort of minimalistic ringo yeah. star charlie watts and then there's the you know uh, scott rock and feel of queens Reich and neil pert uh, 87 mil. what sort of you yeah yeah over the top so so where do you sort of see yourself in that are you less is more more is yeah more? right lately uh you know and you've seen my kit it's pretty basic mm-hmm. uh you know i've got two floor toms because i i get lost down there so i need another drum to go to so i've always had a second floor tom but i've been through the double bass drum you know a lot of the hollow notes stuff uh mm-hmm. was Two kick drums, three racks, a whole, you know, Simmons pad kit next to the hats and, you know, all the electronic. Yeah. All the, you know, we went through all those phases of. Well, the 80s was all Simmons pads. Yeah. And trying to, you know, do the big, the big drum kit thing. But a lot of the, and Brian too, a lot of those early records had big, long, big Tom fills, you know. So, uh, you know, all of that stuff was essential you know you needed three racks to do the mm-hmm. you know cuts like a knife fills and the summer 69 fills and you know all that uh but the last maybe i'm gonna say 10 or 12 years i've we've just pared it down brian likes the look of a smaller kid on stage he likes a sort of cleaner stage with not a lot He's of right. gear yeah and if i can cover those songs with the kit uh being as minimal as i can make it then that's what we do. So I'm pretty comfortable with the kid as it is. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I cover those those big sort of flammy Tom things with what I have now, and it works. You know, it's working fine. Yeah, I, and I love I love the uh, uh, Yamaha made this kit for me this past year, and it's just such a beautiful. It's a hybrid maple shell. They're just absolutely beautiful. I love them. So, you know, if I can get away with a smaller. You know, less stuff on stage than well, we do. Less is more. Yeah, I mean, you know, you need a cowbell and a rivet symbol. That's why, <laughs> and you need those fifteen-inch hi hats. That's for me essential. Yeah. So, and we'll finish with this because we're at half an hour. But uh, Sonic Temple, when yeah. we did an interview in July, uh, they hadn't announced this thirtieth anniversary yeah. five CD deluxe yeah. holy moly thing coming out in September. So let's just revisit that. Now, first of all, what do you think of this five CD with all these yeah. demos? Because now everything you've played on and everything Eric Singer played on yeah. and everything in um, – uh, who's the other guy? Um, there was three drummers. Yeah, it was Eric and um... – I believe his name was Other Guy. Um, <laughs> Mr. Other Guy. Uh, but But – 
is it going to be interesting for you to sit down and have this five CD package and maybe are you, in fact would you bother listening to it and compare how the okay no I I mean I don't know how how much analyzing I would do but right. I'd be interested to hear right. these other things uh, I remember hearing the Eric Singer demos right and I couldn't believe how good they were and they wanted some you know it was like well yeah it's it's good but uh, we want to so you know I had to sort of come up with stuff. Um, but I remember hearing the demos going, this, this stuff is so good now, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to, I'm just going to ruin it. So <laughs> let me ruin your tracks for you. Yeah. And you're going to pay me in Canadian, right? So, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, so I'd be, I, I can't wait to hear some of these things, you know, I mean, Billy's a real, they're, and he, they're really creative guys. Ian's got a million ideas. Right. And uh, it's it, it'll be really fun to see what they have come up with. I just don't know how much. I can't believe there's that much stuff this, around that record, yeah. around that album. But I think we, we probably recorded a lot more stuff than was put out. I'm sure there were other tracks. But, uh, you know, I guess if it's alternate takes and things like that, yeah, that stuff's always interesting, you know? Yeah. So it'll be fun. Fun to hear it. And what's one of your greatest memories of playing on what ends up being sort of their it record? Because you played it basically on the one, the, yeah. the 30 years of, of uh, the it record. Yeah. Uh, the, the one memory I have is uh, when we did Firewoman, and there's that little drummy breakdown middle 8-bit mm -hmm. bridge part. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what I'm supposed to come up with here. Because anything I come up with is not going to be very impressive. And, you know, okay, well, you got... So I remember Bob Rock saying, just uh, whatever comes to you, play. And then we'll go back in, and I will just... We'll, we'll do, you know, 30 fills. Right. And I'll put them together and make it... Right. So I think what they ended up with was actually the first sort of pass-through. Right. Because it had that sort of edginess and... Uh, the drummer doesn't know what he's doing, but he's going to keep playing through this. And Nine hours yeah, later. yeah. No, I mean just on that, you know, it was like, I don't know where I'm going, but I'll just keep going. And until they stop the tape, I think it'll be okay. So that's what we ended up doing. I think that ended up being sort of the initial run through of that um, middle eight bit. But that was a bit nerve wracking. Do do you miss recording like that? Because now it's you do one snare, but then they just throw in the computer and they just sort of hit it. Dip. Yeah, I um. I, I kind of, even now when I record, and I've been doing some session work in uh, Connecticut with, at a little studio there, Verizon Music, uh, um, and we record everything just nice and flat, and just, uh, but then we play with a mix, you know, and it's really fun to just sort of take the live drums and play with the room mics, and like old school, you know, uh, it's not sampled, and it's not, you know, it's just a great room drum sound, and then mix it. Like, take what's there and mix it as opposed to sort of rebuilding it or whatever. It's very organic, and um, it ends up sounding really great. So I look forward to those kinds of sessions, yeah. Those, those are the great yeah. days. and yeah, uh, Right off the floor, and, you know, just don't lose the click track, and everything's okay. <laughs> and, and absolute last question. Uh, Eric Carr, who was in Kiss, yep. came out and did some stuff with Brian, wrote some songs, and on the... Don't leave me lonely. Was that the song or something? Some, one of those. Yeah, maybe, yeah. What What was sort of the connection there? Because at the same time, Brian and um, 
I guess Jim are doing War Machine and Rock and Roll Hell for the Kiss. You know, yeah. how did the sort of the Eric Carr? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how any of that uh, came together. I mean, uh, you did know, you get a chance to meet him? No, I've ne- I never met him. Unfortunately, I'm a big fan too. Um, and great drummer. Yeah, he's great. He's big, oh, big. he's amazing. Uh, yeah, they make some records, man. Wow. Um, no, I never met Eric, and I, I don't know what the connection was. But I know that uh, Brian and Jim, as songwriters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they get out there, man, and network that stuff. And, you know, everybody's looking for songs all the time. So uh, it was probably that. This, you know, Eric as a songwriter and a producer or whatever. Uh, a little circle. A little circle of those guys, you know, at the time. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how, they, how that all came together. Uh, it'd be interesting to, to figure it out. dig into that, yeah. Well, Brian's right next door. Let's knock. Yeah, you can knock on the door. <laughs> on He's the door. recording actually as we speak. Yeah. I know. Uh, it'll end, it'll end up on the podcast, and I'll get some kind of like cease and desist from. A, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, but but always a pleasure. Uh, Thanks, so many more man. questions, and yeah. and that live aid stuff. That you know, yeah. first of all, I, I wasn't aware that you did the whole hour. I knew that there was a little more yeah, than we just were, hall. But yeah, we would no, we were on for. I don't know if it was exactly an hour, but it was a long. It was. A, it felt like. But of course, it went by. It felt like ten minutes when you were up there. The energy level was so. Uh, I remember being so nervous and just the pounding and the heat in that. It place. was just and the sound was not great. You know, everything was wedges and sort of. You know, you're you're one of forty bands that day, and nobody knew what anybody else was doing. You just sort of winged it. But thank God for T Bone Walk and and GE and Charlie Deshant and um, you know. We had a we had a great band, and everybody was watching everybody else. And uh, you know, you get you, you get each other and, through and, those yeah, things. And, and we got through it. And, and some it of these great. bands that didn't do the stuff like the Huey Lewis and stuff, yeah, the drink, yeah. maybe a little bit of regret. Yeah. But you got to do it for an hour. Yeah, uh, we there we go. Good. We were fun. So. As we say, uh, merci. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks always toujours un plaisir. Always yeah. a pleasure. Merci and. Uh, and uh, talk to you again soon, I guess. Yes. And if you see Keith, yeah. please convince him that the Boston Bruins are not a good team to cheer for. <laughs> are you a Bruins fan too, being from Connecticut? No, but, but I love, Thank I God. love go- Keith and I went to a Bruins game oh. uh, a few years ago. And a guy, Keith, Keith had his big, um, you know, his big snow parka coat on, <laughs> his big bubble coat on. And a guy, some red-faced... Boston guy and he's got a big beer and he's got it up here and it's like pouring all over me. He looks at Keith and he goes, Hey, what's with the pocket? You expecting a blizzard? <laughs> That's all I got for Boston. There you go. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Merci, merci. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk.